This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 436 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Kevin Berthia. Now, you might recognize Kevin's name from an iconic picture of him talking to Kevin Briggs, one of my prior guests on the Golden Gate Bridge. So Kevin, like many of my guests, got to a point where he was willing to take his own life and an interaction with a highway patrol officer in California ended up having him climbing back over. So we discuss a host of topics from how being an orphan factored into his own mental health challenges, the journey to that fateful day on the Golden Gate Bridge, and the incredible metamorphosis and growth he's had since to become the man he is today. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find, so please take the time to do so. And this is a free library of well over 400 episodes now, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Kevin Berthia. Enjoy. So, Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. I know your kids are at home and, you know, trying to get homework done. So I appreciate you carving out some time for this discussion today. Appreciate you, man. Always, always a pleasure. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Sacramento, California. All right. So what I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Got you. Um, I was born in Oakland, California, um, uh, raised by, uh, I was adopted, uh, had to start there. I was adopted at six months, um, six month old and raised by Narvella Berthia and Charles Berthia. I have two older siblings, um, uh, Kim and Tracy, um, family dynamic. Uh, I'm, I'm the youngest, uh, youngest sibling, only boy. My parents, uh, my dad worked as, as a tree maintenance 
He cut down trees, uh, maintains parks uh, for a living for the city of Oakland. And my mom worked for the Port of Oakland as an executive secretary of, of Human Resources Division. Beautiful. Now, were your older siblings adopted as well, or were they biological? No, biological. Okay. I'm, the, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the only adopted. Right. So I know that adoption obviously factors into part of your story. So just before we kind of enter into that, um, what were your parents' reasons for having two and then adopting yourself? Um, well, when I met, I got the chance to meet my biological mom. I really don't know the real reason. I just know that where she was at at the time, she couldn't physically take care of a child at the time. So, yeah, but, but I mean, your actual, yeah, your, you know, your adopted parents, what made them have two and then adopt uh, a baby? Oh, oh my, okay. My adopted parent, my mom, she just wanted a boy. Uh, I have two older sisters and I, she just, she wanted a boy. <laughs> to be honest with you, I, the way that my dad is, I believe that he, if he'd have had three more kids, they would have been all girls. So he's a girl dad. He would have, you know, that's just what he produces girls. So I feel like, you know, she wanted a boy. She wasn't taking no chances. Um, and my sister, I think that, you know, my, and my sisters are all a lot older than me, um, nine and, and, and seven years apart. So I think that she got that itch and she just, you know, she wanted her little boy. Very cool. Okay, so um, when you were young, before we get into kind of your your mental health uh, struggles, even as a young boy, I heard you discussing it before. What about sports? Did you love playing sports as a kid? I love playing sports. And sports was actually the only thing that kept me on track. Um, um, you know, that, that was like an amazing um, – opportunity to just just find who I was um I struggled because of being adopted I struggled like severely with just identity who I am who I belong with and just sports gave me that opportunity to be in a be in a control group where I had a had a responsibility that I knew exactly what I was there for and it just it gave me that identity that I needed and the the family and the this you know sports I played five sports growing up I was very athletic my mom put me in soccer to begin with uh, then it was baseball. Then it was basketball. Then I ran ran track, and then I then I you know end up end up um, swimming. So all these different different um, sports growing up helped me keep me um, in line and, and focused. So what was interesting listening to your story, and obviously we'll we'll pull it out now. But I've had so many people on the show who have had suicide ideation. Some of them literally enacted it. Kevin Hines is one of them, um, you know, and survived. And it seems like one of the common denominators to getting to that point of darkness was childhood trauma. Now, that being said, some of them, again, and this isn't a a sliding scale, but some were horrific, like, you know, sexual abuse. And then some were more feeling not loved, feeling out of place, that kind of thing. So when you look back, you know, what, what kind of factors do you look at now that contributed to some of your, you know, your, your unhappiness, basically? Absolutely. 100% abandoned. I have been, even to this day, even to this moment that we are speaking right now, I have been, I have struggled with trying to understand the why. And it's a a question that you ask yourself because you really, really are trying to understand Well, out of every, because I, I grew up in Oakland, California. So I grew up around a predominantly black community. And Everybody, when they say everybody looks alike, but most people looks look like where they come from. And but me, when I look, I don't look like my mom or my dad. Like I don't, you know, because we're black, we look alike because we have the same color, but we don't physically have the same attributes. So 
it, it, it was always different for me, you know, difficult for me struggling with trying to figure out where I belong and understanding you know, why did I, why did I get abandoned? Why, why did I get, why did I get given up? Like, why, why, why me? Like what was so different about me that, that, you know, I, I, that, that wasn't, wasn't, that's not different from anybody else. Like, because I didn't, I mean, I'm sure growing up, I mean, as I look back now, I can say, well, it might've been, you know, it might've been a kid, another kid that was adopted, but nobody probably knew, but I, I felt like I was the only kid in the whole school that was adopted. Yeah. So you had quite an interesting journey where you really started feeling, you know, the, the depression quite early on. And I, I was exposed to this a little bit with my, my little boy. He went through a real low, low point, um, about a year ago, you know, and, and was very, very, and not, not so much with him getting to kind of suicide ideation, but just, just deeply, deeply sad. Um, yeah. and it even got oh, to the point. Hurt. Yeah, well, it got him to the point where, and this was a mistake, but, you know, he was even um, sent by the school to uh, a Baker Act, you know, a psychological hold. So, which, you know, was the absolute polar opposite would have happened. That ended up being worse than anything else they could have done. Um, but, you know, again, so I don't think people understand how many of our children actually struggle. So tell me about yours. We think that we it happens when we become adults. And what people re- realize is it, it's... it's it's in our it's in our childhood that something happens. Somebody right now is fifty years old, trying to trying to get over something that happened when they were six, and they don't even know it. They have no they have absolutely no idea because they're trying to use their fifty year old understanding, but that is not going to help them. My 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 as early as age five, I knew I was different. Like I knew I had a problem. I knew that my brain functions, the things that I thought about, the the the. The, the dark places that I was able to go in my brain, how I felt and how down I can get and how many times I had to pull myself out of that. Even as a, this is as a child. Like, so I know um, for sure that our, our, our youth are, are really, really, uh, if they don't understand what they're up against, they're, 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 they're being cut, their legs are being cut for them. And, and I think that we have to, we have to, we have to more than ever make sure our youth know what's going on, that this stuff, that they have to be able to talk about their problems. Because had I been able to talk about these things and really deal with them, like in, in a way that, that was mature enough for me to deal with them, that I, I know I wouldn't have made the decisions that I made then and now. Um, and I think that, you know, learning early in life that I had an issue, I didn't, I didn't know how to process it from a kid's mind. That's why it's always good that, you know, we have the opportunities for people to reach out and talk about this stuff so they can get understanding from an adult mind because I processed everything from a kid's mind which was horrible for me yeah what it, and what I've seen because I have my little boy now will come home you know talk about they had a mental health day and education and again I, I'm I know the intention is good but I think because there is a stigma there because there's a kind of uh false narrative like oh don't talk about suicide it might quite you know cause a kid to, to commit suicide where it's the complete opposite we should be open and honest and create an environment for children to be able to speak and not um sensationalize some of these feelings that they're probably going through it's the unknown it's that great area of unknown is what is that is where we fall kids fall adults fall people fall because we think that not talking about it is the best solution and not talking about it is, is why the numbers are the way they are. Like, and I think that until we get to a, a, a place and it's not even to be not about, it's not even about comfortable now talking about it. Like, you know, it's plastered everywhere. We have to just talk about it. 
more. We just have to continue these talks and continue these talks and continue these talks so that more people are comfortable, you know, coming out and coming out and saying, yes, I have an issue. Yes. Yes. I'm dealing with this. Yes. I'm dealing with this. And then the people that are listening to these issues, they are able to create these safe havens for people to be, you know, able to express their feelings without feeling judgment, you know, judged or somebody going to laugh at them or, you know, we just got to do better. And I think that we can do this. Um, society has proven that we can do this because we do it every day. We just don't do it in 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 a in a in a in an a, a astronomical overwhelming in numbers. We do it. I mean, it's somebody right now that's in a dark place, that somebody's pulling them from that dark place. But it can happen every day. It can happen everywhere. We just got to do better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you think about the image of you know a, a school age kid that breaks their leg, and they come in the next day and they're on crutches and they got the big you know plaster on, and you know people are being mindful of them and they're helping them around because they can't move themselves they're signing their cast you know all these things because it's a visible injury and we need to treat you know depression anxiety those kind of elements the same way you know, it's you need support that way the same way as you need help up the steps when you've bro- broken your leg yeah yeah absolutely and i think that, that that invisible what keeps people not seeking help is because they know they they, they don't they don't they don't they don't look at themselves in the mirror and see their pain or they don't see they don't see what, what they what, what, what they want people really to see. And I think that we have to talk about these things because none of us look like what we've been through. You look at somebody and you're like, I didn't know you went through cancer. I didn't know you you, you just you just fought chemo. I didn't know you just got out of a car accident because a lot of us don't look like what we go through. And if we spend, you know, time thinking about, you know, waiting on a certain look, then we're going to miss it. You know, like, you know, we all can come and design, you know, in all kinds of shapes and designs and styles and we all can mask it a different. But like I tell people, and I, I say this on any opportunity that I have time to speak, everybody on the face of this planet is struggling with something. Something. We just all mask it different. We all have a different way of coping with it. And I think that people really go through life thinking that everybody has this perfect life and nobody has a perfect life. Nobody. We all we all are struggling with something. It's just that this person that that's struggling with this, they have money for their bills. You may be struggling with whatever you're struggling with, and you may not have money for your bills. So now your struggle is the money that you need for your bills on top of everything else you're dealing with. So it's it's all about it's it's just a different perception, but I believe that it's all the same, and we all are the same, dealing with the same issues, and that that's why we need to come together more. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, then walk me through, you know, your your childhood up to kind of high school age, as far as the some of the mental health struggles that you had. Got you. Um, it was tough. <laughs> I'm be honest with you. Uh, I didn't really know how tough it was until I got older and looked back, <laughs> and it's just like, man, I don't know how you did it, but mentally, I was just all over the place. I went through, um, uh, and I struggled with split personality disorder. So you know, it's just so for me, uh. And I just learned this. I just accepted it because I just, I, I've known for years, but I, it took me a long time to accept it. So I had to really just bounce between uh, two different personalities as far as dealing with everything that I'm trying to deal with. And it was difficult, you know, balance, trying to balance everything. You know, everything was fine until pretty much until my parents divorced. When my adoptive parents divorced, that's when everything in my life physically changed. Like I was able to kind of stay in this shadow and stay in this kind of structure um, because I got up every day, went to, went to school, went to three different practices at the boys club. I had a good structure family at home. So I, I kind of, I really didn't worry about how I really felt about myself because I, I stayed in this structured dynamic. 
But as soon as my parents divorced, you know, about 1995, it was the same year that I was transitioning from elementary to junior high. Another thing where I tell parents, please be mindful when your kids transition from schools. When you go from junior high to high school, when you go from elementary to, 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 to junior high, when you go from kindergarten to elementary, those are huge transitions for kids. And we do not be mindful of the emotional, uh, mental capacity that is needed to, for kids to move to the next step. We just expect it as because so many people do it and then we're so used to doing it, it gets done. But mentally, it takes a lot. The same year that I was tra- going from you know, elementary to junior high is the same year my parents were divorced. So I not only had to deal with the transitions of, you know, going from, you know, school to school, I had to deal with the transition of my whole life changing from a standing dy- dynamic of having stability, knowing, you know, where I'm going to eat every single night, knowing I got a home cooked meal every single day. Um, you know, I just, it went from the dynamics of eating at a family table with, you know, my dad and my two sisters and my mom, and we, we ate as a family, we did the church as a family. My whole life changed with my parents' divorce because, you know, I ended up having to go with my, you know, go with my dad because I wanted to be with my dad. You know, my two older sisters, of course, stayed with my mom. So that dynamics changed. It became more of a now I'm with my dad. Now I'm not I don't have the family structure. I, I, I moved literally probably three or four times just moving with my dad because because he was moving to different places. You know, stay with my mom. We lived in one address my whole life. Like, you know, staying with my dad, it was two or three. Two to, three, two to three different places, you know, trying to get settled because he was just trying to figure out his way when he got after the divorce. So all these different things um, happen um, during that time frame. And then you throw in at 16, meet my biological mom. This is all the stuff I've done before I got out of high school. You know, I uh, identified that I had a mental health condition that I didn't even know really a name for. I just knew that I was struggling in a dark place. Um, dealing with my, my parents' divorce, and then meet my biological mom. All those things came with a wave of emotion that I can never explain. And that's why I tell people, if anybody's out there that's listening to this, if you're adopted, if you're going through foster care or whatever, and you want to meet your biological parents, please go get help first. Go go physically talk to somebody, a therapist, somebody about how, it's gonna, how you're going to feel because it's another wave of emotion that comes when you meet your biological mom our biological parents. And I didn't prepare myself for that. Meeting my mom where I was at in the broken area of where I was at was probably one of the worst decisions I could have made at that time. But the only reason why I wanted to meet her and needed her is because I, I just, I was in a bad place. I felt like maybe bringing my biological mom into this and, and her being able to fill in this void of all these questions that I have, maybe it can help, but it only made things worse. Um, you know, a year later I met my biological dad. So you, you, you kind of can understand by the time I got to 12th grade year, my senior year, I had physically had all of Kevin's problems. I physically had all of my adoptive mom problems. I physically had all of my adoptive dad's problems. I physically had all of my biological dad's problems. So all these different personalities, all these different issues, all these different everything, I took all that on. And that's where I found myself 12th grade year looking out. Like I got to go enter into the world and I was afraid. Um, I never wanted to graduate high school because I knew I had to go into the world. I wasn't going to be able to play sports. I wasn't, I, I had to find a structured schedule and that's what I was afraid of. So that, that is my childhood. My childhood consists of really so many different times of trying to figure out who I am. Um, I'm a natural chameleon. So I, 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 I'm able to just be what people need me to be. And that is good and bad in a lot of situations, you know, 
So it's just, it's a culmination of all these different things. But it during this whole, my whole childhood, I never said that I had a mental health condition. I never knew that I had a mental health condition. So I didn't really know or even knew what mental health was until I was 19 years old. So that from, from five, from five to 19. So my whole life, that whole period, I didn't know nothing about what I was dealing with, but I was just dealing with on the inside. So again, from the outside looking in, you know, as you were younger, you're aware that you were adopted. There's that kind of subconscious feeling of not being good enough. You know, you were given away, which which is, you know, going to be a cancerous thought for a child. And then the divorce happens. I'm sure there's a lot of guilt and blame that you get a lot of kids that blame themselves for their parents. And I blame myself. That's the thing. I blame myself. So then you're carrying that. Was there an element of your mother and then your father, I'm talking biological, when you're about to meet them, like, oh, everything's going to be okay now because they're they're going to yeah, they're yeah, going to fill yeah, this void. Absolutely. That and that's what meeting my mom was supposed to fill this huge void. And see, I, I I set myself up because before I met my mom, I already had the greatest mom on earth. My adoptive mom is the greatest mom on earth. Like, oh, she does every she even to this day. Like, this is my best friend. This is the, like I know why she picked me, and I know why like we're together. Like, we click. So in my brain, as a child, I thought if my adoptive mom loves this, me this much and she didn't even give birth to me, my biological mom must must going to love me more. Right. I mean, she has to. She gave birth to me. I came from her. I'm probably going to look like her. So I set myself up for all these different things. The first night that I spent with my biological mom, we didn't even really bond. It was like I, I expected after 16 years, you don't see your child. You expected, you know, I had this expectation that, you know, we going to stay up all night and, you know, drink chocolate, chocolate syrup, milk. I don't know. Just whatever I was thinking, I just it just wasn't that. I, I just knew that this was going to be the fulfillment that I needed in my life. And, it, and what it did was it took me further away from where I needed to be. It took me so far out and I ended up being on an island by myself where before I met my mom, I at least had foundation to stand on. When I met my mom and then met my dad, I, I, it put me on an island by myself because it made me feel like, well, why did I get adopted? Because I was expecting in my in my heart, I don't know why I was expecting to meet my parents and they be all messed up. Like I was expecting to have an, like I already had in my brain, like I know my mom, when I meet her, she's probably going to be a drug addict or, you know, not saying I wanted that, but I knew it had to be a reason why she gave me up. Like it had to be a reason. Had to be. It had to be something like, you know, she was strung out, something. But I, knowing who I was when I met my mom and knowing what I know now, I didn't give her what I what I want for the world, how I want people to see everybody's invisible illness. I didn't see hers. She was she's been dealing with mental health her whole entire life, in and on, in and out of psychiatric hospitals and things like that. And I didn't see her. I, I didn't give her enough to understand that she's battling and dealing with a lot of stuff too. And I expected her to be something that I know she couldn't be, but I didn't realize that then. Now looking back, I can kind of understand, but as a 16 year old child who says, who, who, who needs this, I needed her to be my mom. I, I needed her to be something that she couldn't be. And that caused a whole lot of problems uh, emotionally. 
Well, you mentioned as well about struggling with graduating. That was a very powerful thing as well. You know, there's, again, there's been some very acute traumas that I've had on this show. And then there's, you know, in my profession, a perfect parallel, you have the firefighters that were at the World Trade Center. You know, that's a very acute trauma, incredibly acute trauma. But then you have the other 99% of the profession who just see a huge amount over their career and it adds up and it layers and layers, which also takes people sometimes to the same dark place. With, with, um, you know, that as another layer, did you have any kind of dreams, any career aspirations in high school that you wanted to be if everything went right? To be honest with you, at nine years old, um, at nine years old, I mean, I played sports, but I, and I was good. Like, you know, I was, I was, I was good at sports because I, because of the, you know, the reputation it brought. I mean, if you were good in sports, it kind of kept people off of you. So I was good at sports kind of for the reputation. I don't think I was good at sports because I was aspiring to become an NBA player or NFL player. It was more so, you know, because of the reputation you get with it and it kept people off your back. So I didn't really have dreams as far as athleticism dreams. When I was nine, I knew that I wanted to be a pastor. I I knew it. I knew I wanted to be, I I knew I wanted to be a pastor. Like I knew it. I I was in the moment. I I listened to a guest preacher we had that came over to my church. And in that moment, I knew I wanted to be a pastor. So that was the only thing that I ever aspired to be. It's just that that was hard for me because I knew that because of how I felt internally, I probably wasn't never going to be able to be that because of how I felt about myself. And to be able to try to be a certain way and to be to that and to do what I really, really want to do, I knew that it was going to take so much more than me. So that's what I thought. See, now that I'm getting older, I'm realizing, you know, it, it, you know, life changes, things happen. I mean, you know, some of the greatest people in life had to go through the, the, the worst of things. So Absolutely. Well, with that, so, you know, you, you have all these layers, you met your mother, you know, that obviously, I mean, I, it continued past high school, if I'm understanding right, but that wasn't the, the initial, you know, again, the, the, the void filled from, from an absence of love from, you know, an actual biological mother, you had to kind of repeat with your father. So walk me through graduating. What was it like when you were forced to, to graduate from high school? And oh, then man, kind of June 4th. I'll never forget the day. Uh, hottest day of the year that year in Oakland. Um, hundred and some degrees, hundred and two degrees. And I was thankful that my name is starts with a B. Last name starts with a B because as soon as I got my diploma, I got up out of here. <laughs> but it was it was it was it was kinda like I was so afraid because I was didn't know what what to do next. Um and I remember um uh, the next day trying to figure out well, what's my plan because I got so used to getting up going to school, like I got used to that, that regiment. I mean, you know, because I've been doing it since kindergarten. I mean, you, people don't realize the kids from kindergarten to 12th grade, you do the same thing every day. Like it's the same thing. It's not, it's not. And I got so used to being in that structure that not to wake up and not have to go to school and not have to get on the bus or try to figure out, you know, all the different things to function throughout the day. I had to figure that out. Luckily enough, I had, um, I had a soccer coach who, because I was, you know, I was great at soccer and like, not to toot my horn, but you know, that was the one sport that if I could have been something at, it would have been soccer because it was the one sport that I just, I was designed to play. I have, I have the body for it. I have the finesse. For it. I just, that was my sport. And, um, I had a coach that, that I played for my club team who knew another coach that worked at the city college of San Francisco. 
And he sent him, you know, a video of mine. The guy was interested. So I went out there and kind of sat down and talked to him. And I'm from Oka, California. So I've ne- I've probably been to San Francisco probably a couple times because, you know, people from back then, you know, we stay in Oakland. We don't go anywhere. Like we don't go over the bridge. Like, you know, San Francisco people stay in San Francisco. Oakland people stay in Oakland. That's just how it was. So going over to San Francisco, I saw it as an opportunity, man, to just have something different. I mean, it was, you know, get away from, you know, what I've known. Uh, you know, just just and, and and I just saw it as an opportunity to be better. And so graduating, you know, I end up it's, it's ironic when I graduated, I end up um, moving in uh, half of my senior year. I stayed with my biological mom. And then so graduating, I end up, you know, still going back out there and starting college from from there. So um, which was College is in San Francisco, and I was living in Richmond, which is about an hour and 15 minutes away. So I had to commute every day on the bus and bar and all these different things. And um, I got to end up getting a job because um, um, I realized that we'll do, a, you know, I realized that adults, in order to compensate for that schedule as being kids, they, they compensate with work. Like they, they, the coping mechanism for a lot of adults is work. They spend all their time at work. Like that's, that's their function of how they get through life. And so I ended up getting a job. I'm a full time student. Um, um, full-time on, on, on the soccer team. And I got a full-time job, which is in San Bruno, which is 45 minutes from my school, which means I got to go two hours just to get all the way to Richmond home at night. Um, so I got, I'm back to having a full day, um, to where I'm so busy that I, I'm, I'm still not worrying about how I feel. I'm still not worrying about internally that I'm tearing apart on the inside because I'm just busy. Um, uh, uh, you know, that, that kind of went on, you know, for a minute. And then I, what I did was I ended up getting into a, I met a girl and I always tell people be mindful of what you got going on in your own life because I never was in a situation where I was ready to be in any type of relationship because I had so many of my own issues. I mean, I had so many things going on to be in a relationship with another individual was the worst thing that I probably could have done at the time because she had just, she had just as much issues as I did. So we tried to, bring all this together and it just caused all these different problems. And all we did, I mean, I think I look back and say, we didn't have kids. We didn't have a mortgage. We didn't have all these things that you should argue about as an adult. I don't even know what we argued about so much, but we just argued a lot. And in those arguments, you know, things were being triggered with me. And I didn't realize that's when I started learning my triggers. You know, I see why dad and mom argue, you know, my whole life, you know, but I never, i never really physically argued with anybody. Like I never really physically yelled at anybody. I didn't even know I've known that I had anger inside of me, but I didn't know it really existed until I got into this arguments. I got in this relationship, started arguing, and I and and I started seeing that I was a totally different person in these arguments. And on one particular day, I got overwhelmed. This is when now I'm about 19 years old. Like you know, I, I didn't got overwhelmed. In year out of year out of high school, I didn't got overwhelmed on this particular argument, and um. During that time frame, you got to go in order to walk out the out the out the house. You got to walk through the kitchen, and as I'm walking through the kitchen, lo and behold, the the biggest knife in the house is laying on the counter. And as I'm going out, something told me in my brain, grab that knife. And I grabbed that knife on the way out, and I ran out the house. And my older sister at the time, she didn't even she's never seen me upset because my whole life I've always mimicked being everything being fine with me. I never wanted to show anybody that anything was wrong with me because I was always afraid of of, 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 if, if, if I show people what's wrong with me or if somebody questions what's going on with me, then, then some, then, then I'm vulnerable and I never wanted to be vulnerable. So I always 
stay, you know, on top of everything to make sure everybody knew no matter how I felt on the inside, you never would see it. You, everything on the outside will always look like they had it together. So on this particular day, I just got overwhelmed and I couldn't, I couldn't control the anger. And my sister's never, like I said, she's never seen me upset. She didn't know what to do. So she called the local authorities. They came out, found me about 10 minutes later. And when they found me, I had that knife to my throat. Now I've never, this is my first time really doing anything like this. I mean, at 14 years old, I had an episode where I, where I took, you know, my, my uncle's van and I kind of went on a joyride and I wanted to drive off a cliff. That was like my first attempt. I didn't really know it was an attempt. I just, I didn't even realize it until 19, I'm sitting on the steps with the local authorities in front of me and I got this knife to my neck. And for some reason in my life, some reason I feel, I feel like I have, I'm in control. It may not have been a good control, but for the first time in my life, I'm really in control. Like I dictated what was going to happen in the next couple of seconds. And you know, that went on for about, you know, longer than it needs to go on for. And they ended up having to tase me because I would not take that knife down from my, from my throat. I was taken to my first psychiatric hospital. And this was an eye opener because I've heard of these places, but I didn't even know they existed. When I got here and finally came, you know, in my right mind and started thinking, you know, clear, I just heard all this yelling, all this screaming, and I was trying to figure out where I was. And I remember all the, you know, I remember doctors, a couple of doctors came in and, couple nurses came in they were trying to explain me these things and you know using words like 5150 and suicide attempt i mean you got to realize i'm 19 years old i've never heard i've watched the news every single day and this is what i told him i watch the news every single day i already feel alone i already feel different you're trying to tell me that i have what's this word depression i've never even heard that word like i'm literally telling this it's because at 19 years old i never heard suicide i never heard 5150 i never heard depression that literally 19 years old, I de- I've been battling something my whole life and I didn't even know a name for it. That's why I'm telling you that kids are dealing with things now, right now in this moment. And they don't even know what they're up against. They don't even know what they're battling. Had I known that first, I'm not alone in this. Two, that, it's other, that, that, that it, it really is something and I'm not crazy. It would have changed the, my dynamics of how I thought about myself and how I treated the situation. I'm just now finding out at 19. So, of course, what did I do? Naturally denied all of it because that's not who I am. Like, yeah, I understand I had a knife to my throat, but I had a bad day. I had a bad moment. You know, like, let me out of here and we'll, I'll figure it out. So I did everything that I could. They gave me the PQ9 test, which I failed miserably and all these other different things. But I still didn't believe I had depression. I still didn't believe I suffered from anything. Like, you know, please just let me do what I got to do to get out of here. And that's what I did. I did with everything I do. And they released me and I went back home. And I tried to continue to go on and act like everything that exists. But I, I knew in my heart that I was already different. It was something different about me. It's like I exposed myself and I allowed myself to, to know that I can die. Like really, really know that I could be in control of getting myself out of pain. And that was the worst thing that I probably could have told myself that I control whether that I don't have to live here and I don't have to be in this pain. And that was the, the, the start of something horrible because the next, the next, you know, unraveling is, 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 is the next years are just getting worse and worse and worse. Well, there's, there's so much, you know, in that. So I want to start with, and again, I don't want to load the question. Like I said, I had a negative experience with a, with a psych uh, facility with my child, but he should never have been sent there in the first place. And I think the people that were there were, were fantastic. They really were. But with you looking back now, you know, with the, the time you spent there, would you say that 
that that was a, a you know a good experience that you needed to be there because I've had some you know, some people on the show who are psychologists themselves who have said actually the studies have shown that that the you know forced psych holds you know a lot of times can be detrimental. So you personally on your journey, what was your experience of the actual facilities and 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 that impact on your mental health? I, 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 okay, I'm gonna give you two like this. The problem is we need we need two different places or three different places or four, however many different places, because it's different levels to me being the, 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 that I've never been exposed to mental health to take me to a place like that. And I've never even know that what mental health is. It really, it, it really was a burden and really, really made things in my brain shift and switch and, and do all these different things and, and sway. And because I didn't know this stuff existed. And I think that if I would grab to a place where it's more, people that can can help you with the transition of it I mean, because you know you got to realize something i went from you know uh uh you know the day before my hospitalization being at a party i'm the life of the party now i'm in a hospital room and all i hear is screaming and people banging their heads on the wall that is a that is a huge transformation to have to deal with and adjust to and understand especially when you're in your own mental capacity where you're dealing with stuff. And I think that it needs to be a place. It has to be a, 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 a halfway midpoint for people that are all the way over there and people that are midway there, people that are still learning because you can't be all in the same. Like, you know, you can't put, uh, 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 you know, uh, pocket thieves, you know, people that, that, that will steal candy in the store with real killers. But that's what we do. We, we, we put everybody together and it's not, it has to be a separate. I, I think that if I would have been separate, you know, that's just like when I went to counseling, they put me into a group, a group therapy counselor. I don't know how they thought that was going to work. I never talked about my problems my whole life. Why would you think it would be, I would be comfortable in a group setting where people are already comfortable talking about their problems. I needed more one-on-one and then you can put me in the group. Like they go from group to the one-on-one, which is backwards. Everything about our system is just completely backwards. And then people get thrown through the system and, and we wonder why people don't want to seek out help is because the help is backwards. Well, it's such a powerful perspective. And that's that's the thing. It's not saying, you know, that any anyone is is, you know, is is wrong for doing what we've done up to this point. But there are many, many areas that I've talked about on the show where, you know, <sighs> Sometimes there's the point where you say, look, can we just revisit it? Can we just ask the people the facts and see, you know, have we had success? And so I, I have the same exact thing that you have with my little boy. One minute he's in a classroom crying because, you know, he's basically just in this point where he is, um, you know, not even like, ridiculously depressed just just depressed he'd been you know experiencing some bullying from a kid in the ch- in in the class and he's just got his head on the table they're doing a visualization uh, um uh you know, te- not test a visualization experiment with the children and he starts crying and they're like oh what's wrong oh you know i'm just imagining this the next thing the police are taking him to a psych ward and they're taking their his shoelaces and he's there for three days you know, so I agree with you 100%. There are definitely men and women out there who at that moment, whether it's brain chemistry, whatever it is, if we do not encapsulate them, they will literally walk out the door and take their own life or hurt someone else. But there is such a, a spectrum up to that point, And that's level 10. So I think you're spot on. You know, there's there's all these other degrees. And I get it. You know, you were there with the knife to your throat. But, you know, that all or nothing that just, you know, into a padded room kind of thing. It just seems like that's not 
the most intelligent way. And most people, it's a cry for help. So, you know, I, I, I totally kind of, you know, relate to your perspective. Yours is personal, mine is secondhand, but that there has to be some ways we could do it even better and have that extreme to protect the completely psychotic and then have us, you know, a varying spectrum for everyone that, you know, below that so that we're not throwing a 11-year-old child into a, a concrete cell. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right, well then, so another thing I wanted to pull out that, that you mentioned, and this is something that I've I've noticed as well with... um with you know the some of the the tactical professions as soldiers and firefighters and police officers here is you talked about you were content when you were busy when you were young it was all the sports clubs when you were older you know it was your studies and and the sports again and that's what i see with our men and women but but that manifests normally in overtime second jobs you know and again just pouring themselves into their job so that they are filling that void and not having to address as you said the turmoil that's going on in their head so you know again looking back now did you find that you were just literally you know every time you that that busy was taken away you felt you know the the weight of what was actually going on inside yeah, because you don't you don't really see you don't feel it see it nor do you deal with it when you're busy because you just you know you don't you don't feel it you don't you know when everything is done when when you when you're not able to you know have those coping mechanisms yeah that's when everything you start feeling the weight that's why I said you have to I'm learning that you, we have to process everything even the smallest things because when we don't process them they get processed eventually and we don't know the trigger that's going to make it be processed the things that do affect us just like the things that affected me we 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 overlook them and act like they don't affect us when they really do because at some point in your life whatever you're not dealing with is going to deal with you it's going to it's inevitable and i think that the reason why we get so overwhelmed is because we don't take on the things in that moment that we need to take on we don't deal with the emotions that we need to deal with in that moment like in that moment i should have been dealing with the how i felt not pushing it to the side and, and and now, you know, 10, 10 years later, some, something triggered it that I didn't even know was going to trigger it. And now I'm all overwhelmed and trying to understand it because I don't have the capacity to remember something that happened 10 years ago. But I got the capacity to feel on the inside what happened 10, 10 years ago. My brain may not go back there, but my heart goes there. And I think that we don't realize that. Like, we still suffer from things as a child that we, as an adult, that we can't understand as an adult. Because we think we should be over it, but we're not because we never heal from it as a child. Absolutely. That's so powerful. Well, you talked about crisis. So if you wouldn't mind, walk us through to 22 years old and, you know, on the bridge. March 11, 2005. Uh, I'll probably say that. I'll probably say that date for the rest of my life. March 11, 2005. March 11, 2005. Um, it's a day I'll never forget, <laughs> clearly, um, because... It was the first day I didn't have in control of anything. Um, it was the first day that that I'm I'm used I'm usually normally I can dominate personalities where I can kind of you know have a good level um, level meeting about the about the, about the person about personalities inside. And, but on this day, I, I just was done. I completely I normally can talk myself and, and no matter how I feel because I wake up every day and I and I and I, I struggle with purpose. I struggle with trying to understand my value. But, I, but it's always that other voice that, that that speaks to me and says, you know, come on, let's get out of bed. Let's figure this out. This was the first day that I couldn't hear that voice. And all I heard was, we need to die. And 
that was the first day that I that I've ever ever heard that without the voice. And I got up, and it was just like everything in my life that I didn't handle in that in that up until that the, I was 22 years old. So 20 22 years of whatever time in my life that I didn't handle, which is every time in my life, because up until this point, I never handled any one of my problems. Never. I always acted like everything. I was okay. I always acted like I was fine. I never processed anything about how I felt. It was like I woke up that day and everything that I didn't process, I felt all in one morning. And I got so overwhelmed that I got to the point where I was like, I have to get myself out of pain. I wasn't, I knew that I, I had failed at, at so many different suicide attempts before that, because like I said, at night from 19 to 22, I already, I already had about nine, nine attempts. Just from, just in that, just in that time frame, I had, I had about nine attempts. So by the time I got to 22, which is 2005, I was sitting there like, I need to get my, I have to come up with a full food plan. I, I tried cutting myself. I tried alcohol. I tried, you know, driving off cliffs. I've tried all these different things, but nothing worked. So I had to figure out something that was going to work. And as I'm pumping my gas, I got up and I didn't have that much money. I was pumping my gas. And as the gas tank pumped the click to let you know it's done, my brain clicked and said Golden Gate Bridge. I don't know why. It's not like I had a fascination about this place. I didn't even know where it existed. I didn't even know. I mean, I didn't even know that where it was. I knew it existed, but I didn't even know where it was. Like I, I knew about the Bay Bridge because we kind of travel over that. I had to travel over that to get to school, but I didn't know I have no idea what a Golden Gate Bridge, let alone why would my brain even think about the Golden Gate Bridge. So I didn't have like Google, you know, maps and all these other things. So I had to ask for directions. But my heart was saying that I wonder if I, whoever I asked, I wish they would look at me and and and, and think that you know why would why would we be asking for directions? Like you know this this look like a guy that should know or you know most people know when you go to San Francisco you can follow the signs. So you know I was hoping that they would look at me and, and ask me like you know why are you going there? Because part of me was ready to tell. Whoever I asked for directions, exactly why I wanted to go there. Like, so it's not like I, you know, I had in my brain that I have to get to the bridge and jump. I was like, the moments leading up to driving there, I still was trying to talk about it. By the time I got, you know, over into San Francisco, got lost trying to find a bridge and, and got directions from so many different people and got lost again. By the time I got to the bridge, I was overwhelmed and I was done talking about it. And I got to the bridge. I said, if I make it to the bridge and it must be meant to be, that's just what I said to myself. All right, if I make it to the bridge, it must be meant to be. It must be meant to be. I got over to the bridge. Um, I found a park, which is right in the front. And what's weird is because you go to the bridge, you know, any other day on any given day at any given time. And that park is not there for some reason on this particular day, it was a park right in front park park, left the keys in ignition and I started walking because I didn't have no plans of coming back. Like I knew at this point it was not for show. Like none of this was ever for show. But I knew that I came here and I know I was getting myself out of pain. I was tired of living this lie that I've, you know, lied about my whole entire life. And I was tired of being two different people. Like, you know, I knew one of us had to go. And, you know, to be honest, you know, I didn't I never wanted it was a piece of me that wanted to has always wanted to live, and there's a piece of me that's always wanted to die. And I knew that we both couldn't managed together and I was tired of being this lie to everybody. So I just knew that I was done being a burden and it would be so much easier in this world if, you know, I just get myself out of pain. And so I walked for about 15 minutes, about five, 10, 15 minutes, found a good spot that that I, I felt was a good, good good area. I looked over the railing and I saw nothing that was going to stop me. And the first time when I looked over the railing, I saw water. And when I looked in that water for the first time in my life, I saw peace. I never knew what peace looked like, but for some reason, when I looked in that water, I saw it. 
And it wasn't about, and it's all, peace is all about what you, you know, and I always tell people, yeah, what do you mean when you say that? It's like, when I looked in that water, I saw not having to be a burden anymore. I saw not having to lie about who I was. I saw not having to worry about, you know, searching for value or searching or wondering why somebody had to give you up or, or who you belong to or where do you belong? All these different questions I wouldn't have to worry about anymore. That's the piece that I saw in that water. So I took a couple steps back and I knew that I braced myself for impact of that water because I knew once I get in that part of that water, I was going to be free. I was no longer going to have to live the life that I've been living. And I was not going to have to be in this dark place and live in this pain and be dealing with all these different issues. I wasn't going to have to feel that way. So I was, I was literally took a couple steps back. And as I'm bracing myself, I literally, as I'm starting towards the railing, as I go to jump in the air, I'm physically, my body, both feet are off the ground. I am physically in the air. Uh, my first responder, who I didn't even know he's a first responder. I know nothing about what was going on because my focus was getting into the water. I heard a voice which distracted me. That's all it did. It wasn't even a, a, a you know, a, a, you know, people all say, well, what do you know what he said? It, I don't know what he said, but I know it distracted me. My my idea was get it over the rail and get in the water. So I was doing what I came here to do. That distracted me and it kind of took me out of in my brain. It kind of distracted where I was at in my brain. And it made me like, 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 hold on, like, wait, wait, wait. So it made me like literally grab the railing as I'm going down. So he, or as soon as he saw me, he saw me jump over. So naturally, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm stationed my feet on his core, which is underneath. You can't see from that, from the up above that I'm still there. So from his view, it doesn't even look like I'm there. It just looks like I jumped. And I just remember grabbing the railing and turning myself in this position. And, and, and now I'm freezing cold. I'm not even realizing that I'm 220 feet in the air. I'm, I'm on a, a small railing that my feet can barely fit on. I, I've somehow I put my feet on this thing and, and I'm just standing there and I'm so angry. Oh, I'm so angry because for one, I didn't come here to put myself in this position for one because I'm afraid of heights and I hate being cold. This is 220 feet in the air. I'm at the highest point I've ever been in my whole entire life. And it's March in San Francisco. It's about a 40 degree wind chill. Like it's like for a reason. And I got shorts and a t-shirt on. And then his voice was distracting me from getting to my piece. It's still trying to get my attention. It's like, I never look up. I never have my head. I, I never like look around or anything. I keep my head down, I keep my eyes closed. Cause I know if I look down, I'm done because I'm petrified of heights. So I just, I'm trying to focus and all the thing that's going through my brain is my whole life. My whole life is like running through my head. It's like a freeway. It's like every, if you can imagine a freeway, a traffic freeway, every car you see is a thought. That's how my brain is. Every car you see, every car you see is a thought. And that's what my brain is doing. It's doing a freeway. It's just, I'm sitting there and every bad thing that I've ever done in my life is playing in my brain. The things that I didn't think about, the things that every emotional time in my life where I was hurt, everything, every painful moment, all these different things are just coming up. They're just coming up. They're just coming up. And I'm sitting there on this ledge and, 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 and I'm really, 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 really trying to figure out if I, 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 what do I do next? It's like, I'm not holding on. I don't have like, you know, my feet are, you know, people that look at the picture, they can see that my feet are not, my feet are pointed up. They're not pointed down. Like I want to stay there. My, my, my arm is not holding on to the railing it's literally underneath my t-shirt all i gotta do is a small nudge and go back and i'm 
I'm free. And that's all I keep as, as everything is playing through my head. I keep hearing his voice saying, all you got to do is lean back. All you got to do is lean back. All these different things are going in my head. All you got to do is lean back. And, and, uh, and my, and my other ear is hearing a voice of this, of the officer who's still trying to get my attention. So it's like one ear is hearing this voice. Uh, uh, then I, my brain is thinking about all the things that's going through my head. Then the other ear is hearing, you know, all the commotion of, of, of the bridge and, 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 and all the, all the, just the noise and the wind and all these different things. So I got all this stuff going on with me and he's still trying to get my attention. He's still trying to, and I'm yelling at him. I'm like, stay back because I'm angry. And at this point, if he gets any closer and I feel like he get any closer, I'm going to jump. I'm going to let go. This goes on for about 10 minutes, like back and forth. Finally, he gets close enough and I know he's close enough. I never look up. I never like looked up to see where he was at, but I know he was close enough because his voice, I can hear his voice closer to me. And it was like, for some reason, I, I, I got to a point as I'm on that ledge, something in me just said, why do you even care? Because it wasn't like he was like, like making me feel like I was stupid for being on that ledge. His voice, the closer he got and I got the opportunity to hear it, it was a more of a concerning like, 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 what's going on with you? What, what, what's got you over the bridge? Like, and that's not what he was saying, but that's what I got out of his voice. That's what I'm trying to tell people, teach people about the compassionate side of who you are will allow people to, to, to be comfortable enough to just talk to you. You just got to be create the atmosphere. He create the atmosphere just by his voice. Finally, I was able to 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 kind of let some of that anger go and just started and I just started talking for the next 96 minutes. And I always tell people, people, yeah, 96 minutes, 92 of those minutes. I stayed on that ledge and I just spilled my whole entire heart to a to a to an individual. I never even looked at. I never even saw his face. I never knew what he looked like, like, you know, because it would have changed the dynamics of everything. Because if I would have looked up and saw that he was a white cop. I never would have talked to him based on the dynamics of where I come from because I was taught and where my environment, we don't talk to the police regardless of no kind, especially about your most intimate thoughts. So that's why I'm thankful that I never put my, I, I kept my head down. My eyes never, I never knew he was a cop. I never knew he was a first responder. I never knew he was white. I never knew anything about him. All I know, I was spilling my heart to a complete stranger and he, all he did for 92 minutes was completely just listen to everything I had to say. And I said every, things that I would never tell anybody on the face of this planet, I told him in that day. I told him because I was ready to get out of that pain. I was I was tired of that stuff burdening me. I was tired of that stuff holding me down. I mean, it's, it's so, so incredibly powerful. And I want to get to Kevin in a sec, but just before we do, staying on, you know, again, the the up to that point, the desire for someone just to see you into the That's point it. where where you would stop you am i right in, in remembering you had an experience where quite the opposite happened and a driver shouted at you i mean i don't really know what actually they said but it's just that it's people we we don't realize how fragile being in that, that dark place is and i think that people in their own dark place you know it, it has you it has to take somebody to be in a hurtful place to want to say something that that to somebody that's in a, their own hurtful place and that's why I understand that that you know those type of things happen because people are hurting themselves. Like you know, there 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 it takes a certain type of individual to be to feel a certain way. Yeah, right? it does. 
So, but I mean, so from what I understand, it was something to the effect of why don't you just jump? Yeah. I mean, you see it when I get the comment, it's something to the effect of that. Yeah. Because I mean, I know that when I was out there, it was holding up traffic. Like, you know, because I know at some point they did stop traffic, you know, they did, everything came to a standstill. And I know, you know, that could upset people on their daily commute. Yeah, I just want to underline that because you have the polar opposite. You have this compassionate police officer seeing you and doing everything he can to, you know, persuade you of your own free will to come back over the fence. And then you have the, as you said, the person who's hurting, which also is combined with, you know, a huge amount of selfishness in that moment. That is the reason why so many of our men and women find themselves standing on a bridge in the first place. So yeah, I think that was a very powerful moment just to, to make sure we covered. But so I had Kevin, you know, Kevin Briggs was a California Highway Patrol, um, officer who was the one that was the voice. So what was it about that discussion? What was it that he was saying that ultimately empowered you, Kevin Brathea, to make a decision not to you know make the drop but actually to climb back over it was uh, uh just being able to talk about a lot of that stuff i mean getting that stuff off my plate like just just being able to 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 get that stuff off of there just just the stuff that was burning in me i mean this stuff was just burning on the inside of me um and i just getting that stuff out and then the opportunity because i after i said everything i said he could have picked a million of the things that I told him to try to link, link me and try to like, you know, that was the thing that I'm going to try to, you know, get Kevin back over the ledge because to be in all honesty, only one thing got me over the ledge. That was how I felt about being a failure as a father. Like I've always been a, a failure to myself, but when I failed being a father, you know, to my newborn child who wasn't even one years old at the time, he made me realize that I needed to be there for her first birthday, which was April 6th, which is I went to the bridge March 11th. Her first birthday is April 6th. I would have missed her first birthday. He made me realize that I needed to be there for her first birthday. Like, and I even realized as I'm on this ledge, I'm looking for one reason to live. And I, and I, and I didn't see that that would needed to be the reason. And that was the reason what he made me see. He could he didn't say, well, live because, you know, you can get, get therapy for the doctrine or live because you can, you can fix the divorce or live because this or this or this. No, he made, he, he knew because he listened to me that it was a different emotion when I talked about her. See, and another area that you that you hit on, which I think is so important to underline, and I've talked about this before, there's a lot of, you know, people that view suicide as cowardly, as selfish, you know, oh, you know, they left the they left the family with all that pain. What I've heard again firsthand from men and women just like you is that at that moment the brain had had tricked you basically into believing that you were a burden. So that act of suicide was actually an act of selflessness, not selfishness. Right. So with, with your, with, uh, until Kevin was able to bring you back into, you know, your, um, you know, calm state thinking, was, was that kind of the thought process for you having a little girl? Was that you felt like a burden and that she would be better off without you? Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, I, I had all these horrible things about me and it's just like, to, to, to have to be a dad, to, to, to the responsibilities of a dad, being a, being a new father brings its own responsibility that you never, that's a wave, another wave of emotion that you, you don't, you can't prepare for. It's not like a pamphlet or something that you can kind of walk you through the guise of that. I mean, that's a whole nother level. And you just know how I feel about myself. I never thought I would 
worthy enough to be her father. So it was just, I had to really refocus my mind in that moment to really, you know, shape it to make it see that, you know, regardless of all this stuff that's going on, you know, she, she deserves me and I deserve her. So it's just, you know, I, he made me see that. So people are very familiar with the story. They're very familiar with the iconic picture. You know, like I said, I had Kevin on for people listening. Kevin um, uh, Briggs was episode 371. But, you know, then the kind of, two-dimensional assumption was like, oh, and then Kevin Berthea stepped over the fence and everything was fine. Well, I'm sure there was, you know, a huge uh, journey for you to embark on then to get to where you are now, where you have the foundation and you're trying to, you know, be a voice for people in, you know, with mental health challenges. So what were the, you know, months and then years following that? Was that actual a pivotal moment? Were there other incidents before you were able to start climbing up? The journey has been real. You got uh, when I came off the bridge, I because I wasn't ready to accept everything that was going to come with it. I had no idea what, what was next. Um, so I came off the bridge and I went to a of course a hospital because you, you know that's what you have to you have to go to a hospital. So I ended up having to be there longer than I than than, than expected because I just needed to get into process of eating and sleeping and doing all the things I need to do because. Uh, Two months before going to the bridge, I stopped eating, I stopped sleeping. So getting to this hospital, I just had to get in the functions of living again. And once I got home, my mom showed me that that uh, my picture was first front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. And and that immediately made me feel like I had all this resentment toward, towards myself because I never I, I, I never wanted to, to I always wanted to be in the background. I never wanted people to know that I had a problem. Like I was, I was so afraid of, of coming out. I was so afraid of people really realizing what I have on the inside. And, and now that they have a picture, I didn't know who I spent, who I was going to go back to because I spent so much time making it look like I had it all together. Like I was fine, that I was the life of the party, that, you know, I was the guy that people can come to with their problems. And here I am on a bridge. Like, you know, and when that picture was taken, I had a hard time just accepting that that was me. So it, it took me like literally eight years to accept, I didn't go to counseling. You would think somebody go to the bridge, they go to counseling, they go to outpatient, they go to therapy, medication. I didn't do any of that because I was in so much of a denial that it happened. And then when that picture came out, I was in complete denial that I literally went for eight years without even dealing with that day. Like I didn't talk about that day for eight years. I probably saw that picture two times in eight years. And that that was just, that was it. In that time frame, everything happened. I got a divorce happened and my grandfather died. Um, passed away. It, it was, it was, you know, another, another, another 10, 11 attempts in that, in that time frame, that eight year attempt. I mean, it was just by 2013, I was ready. To, I was in the same position I was in 2005, ready to die with my new year's resolution of trying to get out of pain. Um, so he wrote her a letter. Thank you. And my mom wrote him a letter saying, thank you for saving, you know, Kevin's life. Thank you for being his guardian that day. Um, he held that letter for eight years and AF, the American foundation for suicide prevention they have an annual lifesavers dinner every year in New York, and they honor, um, you know, a, a lifesaver, somebody who they thought, you know, th that that you know goes above and beyond to help, you know, humanity out. And Officer Briggs was up for that award in 2013, and they were looking to have somebody present him the award, and they were saying, "Well, can you find like a survivor, somebody you saved, or a parent?" So he thought about my mom because he had that letter, and so they gave AFSP that letter. So they reached out to my mom. And asked her if she wanted to come out. My mom had a, you know, had a stroke, had some health conditions. She can't fly, and you know, so she kind of convinced me. She knew I wasn't gonna go to New York and talk about it. 
but she knew that I don't ask any questions. So she was banking on me to just go to New York and not ask any questions. And I was in a place where I was at, I was in a bad place in my life anyway. So I was like free trip to New York. Why not? Like I, I never knew it was to meet officer Briggs and talk about this. Um, so I got on the plane going to New York without the, I, without any understanding of why I was going. And I got out there and I remember getting to the hotel room and the, the, the radio station, it was a radio station call. And they was like, and, you know, I'm thinking they looking for my mom, you know, like, you know, like, so they, they was like, well, we, we want to talk to Kevin Barthi. And I'm like, well, how do they know my name? So they, they ended up calling. I called them back and they said, well, we want to hear about your eight year reunion with your first responder. And I didn't know what they were talking about. So I was like, well, let me give you a call back right quick. Let me get some things together. I called my mom. She said, yeah, you're there to meet the officer in the picture. And I'm like, come on, mom, what am I, you know, now, cause I'm stuck. It's like, what can I do? Like, I'm in New York. Like, you know, I, I'm already out here. They didn't pay for this tuxedo, this hotel room. You know, they got a limo waiting for me outside. So now I know why I'm here. So I get on the air with the radio station and we talk openly for the first time about March 11, 2005. The day, you know, what led me up to that? They don't know that it's my first time ever in life talking about it, you know, and somehow we just got through the interview, no dead air time. And it just flowed. I don't know how it happened. It just, it's like I was prepared my whole life. It's like I've been waiting my whole life to talk about this day or something. It was just like, oh, I, as soon as I got the opportunity, it just flowed out. So I got over to the Columbus Circle in Jazz Center where, where the venue was at. And I remember the cocktail hour and, and this was the opportunity where we were taking pictures and I had the opportunity to meet Briggs for the first time. And I never knew, you know, I, I didn't know what to think of the guy. I mean, I know now I know who I'm going to meet. I, didn't, I know he kind of technically saved my life. I didn't know what kind of individual he was going to be, if he was going to be some kind of person that wants me, you know, to bow at him or kiss his feet. I mean, you know, people, how people are sometimes. It's just, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. But when I met him and shook his hand, I knew it immediately, like instantaneously, as soon as I um, shook his hand, I knew why he and how he saved me. It was a compassion about him that just, even from meeting him, it was just, you get around him and you get around his presence. And it's just like, this guy really cares. It, 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 it's way more than a, than a, than, than a, than a job. It is, it, it's, 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 he really, really cares. And I got that from him. So we got to talk and got to meet each other. And, you know, we got to go inside. Um, and for the first time, you know, uh, uh, I sat at a table and they had all these decked out tables and I looked up and it was just, you know, all these different, you know, fancy tables and all these people in tuxes and stuff. And everybody was looking up at the Yahoo documentary and, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the, at the, at the audience. I'm not looking at this big jumbotron behind me. Um, and I remember the whole crowd does this like gas, like, like, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out what they are looking at. And I turn around and it's the picture of me on the bridge. Now it's the first time that I physically looked at it. But when I looked at it this time, something on the inside of me clicked and said, that is me. It was the first time it took me eight years in, in New York where I accepted that that was me on the bridge. All that whole time that during that all eight years, I never accepted that it was me on the bridge. I never accepted that I went to the bridge. How I, in that moment, I accepted it. It, 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 it prepared me for the next moment. I got on that stage and I talked openly about everything that happened that day, March 11, 2005, to a crowd, you know, 300 so, so all people. And I never knew, as, as it's like as every word is coming out, you know, uh, like it's like I could feel things being lifted off of me. And being lifted off me and being lifted off me and being lifted off me and being lifted off me. Like, you know, and being lifted off me and being lifted off me. It's like as, as I'm talking about it more and more and more is being lifted. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at, 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 at 
you know, as I'm talking, like I'm literally talking about this because I don't talk about this. I, I don't want to want to deal with this day, but here I am talking about it. Like it's like, I've talked about this my whole life and I got off that stage. And the moment I got off that stage, it was, you know, kind of a, you know, a couple of people's line starting to form by my, by my table. And I didn't know what to think of it. Um, and the first lady in that line, she used to walk up to me and I could tell she's been crying, you know, which is, you know, I'm not used to that. You know, I'm a very empathetic person. So seeing somebody cry kind of makes me cry. So it, and I looked at her eyes and it was tear, making my eyes tear up. And she said, you know, um, I appreciate you, Kevin. She said, I appreciate your story. Um, she said that, look at me, you know, because I you know, I put my head down because she's crying. I can't really look at her, her eyes. She said, I want you to look at me. She said, listen to what I tell you. She said, my my son, Jacob. Um, lost his battle five years ago. And she said, I haven't slept in five years. She said, tonight I'm going to sleep because now I can understand what Jacob was going through. It's like in that moment, in that moment, as soon as she stopped saying what she was saying, it changed everything about me. Because in that moment, I realized that one, I wasn't alone. And two, that this, everything in my life was so much bigger than me. Like, I, I, there's people in the world that struggle with what I struggle with. I never knew that. I had no idea that anybody in the world struggled with anything that I was struggling with. I thought literally I was the only person in the world that was dealing with this. I didn't know that, you know, millions of people. So I flew from New York, got back to California. I knew I had to make certain changes in my life. I knew that now that I've been on the stage and I, I, had, a, I had a certain accountability that I wanted to have for my life. So I, I just... I started doing whatever it took to get back my life. I said, all right, I want to get back my life. On May 21st, 2013, which is 2,807 days ago, I've been keeping track of every day. I, that was the first day, May 21st, 2013. That was the first day I woke up because I got back from New York on May 9th of 2013. So it took me you know, a couple of days. And by May 21st, May 21st, 2013 was the first day I woke up and I didn't want to die. And I said, no matter what, whatever I did to get to this point, I got to do this every single day. So I came up with a plan for myself. Um, I implemented small goals. I, I changed my environment. I changed my relationship. I changed my friends. I changed all these different things because now I had a purpose to live. My whole entire life, I never knew why I wanted to live or why I needed to live or why any of these different things. And this woman, this mother instilled in me a, 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 a value of hope, instilled in me so much more that I can ever give to her. And, and it completely changed my life. And, and, you know, it took me on to just this new journey. Um, I went, I, I got back, I got serious about mental health. I started learning um, um, everything I, I needed to know um, about mental health. I started, I started, I started, you know, learning, learning about things about myself. I started learning things about the world. I started realizing that this thing is huge. Like, how did I not know about this? How did I miss it? I started realizing that everything I else, everything that I've been through in my life, has prepared me for this for this purpose, like I, I, I like, and I got to be on the opportunity to to. I started being able to opportunity to travel, and, and and then I got then I got picked up by 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 a speakers group who you know started you know getting me events, and then I started it started off one event, and you know then it started off two events, three events, and then and over the years I watched myself you know go from you know speaking at little you know. 50 people venues to 3000 people venues. I mean, it's just, it, it is, it is, it has changed my dynamic of everything. And I've I had the opportunity to become an advocate to really just, you know, get into this mental health world and, and, and do everything I can to implement the things that I want. Um, the vision that I've always had was a foundation. Um, I, I spent so much time 
going through my own personal life, thinking about, well, where do you struggle at, Kevin? What, what did you need when you were a kid? What did you need when you were a teenager? What did you need now that you're an adult? That's where the foundation came to mind. And, and you know, I, I, it took me a long time to really figure out, you know, this and that. But I, I, I finally got this foundation launched off the ground. And it's just I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about the future for mental health because now we're in a in, in, in a in a in a place where it's not about being comfortable talking about mental health. It's about just talking about it. before it was it was there are no more stigmas. We realize now that this is the most important thing that we got to talk about. The world is talking about it. We have commercials now. We have billboards now. We have posters. We have magazine covers. We have all these different things, books. People write mental health books. I mean, it's so many different things. It's not It's not this big elephant in, 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 in the room no more. It, it, it literally is there, and, and we have to just allow it to speak. And I think that the more and more we allow it to speak, the more and more that we get better as individuals. Well, it's, I mean, it's such a powerful journey. And again, you know, I think one thing is obviously that Kevin kept caring, you know, it's eight years later, he still, you know, was, was, was moved by that one interaction. But a couple of things that, that really struck me, firstly, prior to the attempt, you talked about not sleeping. And that's another thing that I think is, is an elephant in the room. I don't think people understand that sleep deprivation, you know, is so detrimental to, you know, to brain chemistry, mental health. And, and, you know, we have, People that deliberately deprive sleep, whether it's a special forces selection or whether it's even interrogation, you know, um, for that very reason, it totally distorts the brain. So I know a lot of my men and women in this profession that have ended up taking their lives that that was definitely a contributing factor. But conversely, the positive side, an absolute common denominator to people healing is having a purpose, having that ability to give back. And Kevin Hines's uh, documentary, Suicide, The Ripple Effect, obviously that's the ripple effect of, you know, one life that's, that's lost. But the absolute opposite happens too. When one life isn't lost, you can have a positive ripple effect with your story, with your foundation, with, you know, whatever it is that you're doing to put back into the world. And I don't think people realize how healing giving back actually is. Yeah, it is. It is that that. But that's but that's that is where all the healing is. Like you you can't you can't self heal. Like healing healing all healing is when you give back. And that part of that giving back is when you tell your story. You're giving back because somebody's gonna hear it, and they're gonna hear it and they say, "Well, wow, he got through it. I can get through it." So and I think that the more and more we it, there's not nobody on the face of this planet that hasn't been through something. But we don't talk about it. There, 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 there's 30 percent of people that are probably talk about it. So the other 70 percent are just going to sit back and listen. And I, I think that we have to become more talkers. You know, we got to get better at listening, but we got to become more talkers, too. Absolutely. Well, with the foundation, tell me tell me what you offer through the foundation and also tell me how people can help support the foundation. Uh, foundation.org. Um, it, it is. I offer uh, one-on-ones. Um, personally, right now, this is where we're at. We're, we're in the beginning of things, and I feel like cer- certain people just need a jump start. So I offer um, one-on-ones right now. Um, the goal and the dream is to be able to provide um, all healthcare functions in one in one place. Um, I feel like in the mental health world, you get you get run you you get so many runarounds. You got to go here for this and here for this and here to this. And I feel like with this foundation, I, I, I have it in my heart not to allow people to have the runaround where they can really be able to be comfortable enough to talk about their problems and go to the next room to, to figure out medication and not be, I talked about my problems. I got all this on the table and now I got to go talk to somebody else to talk about my problems again about medication. 
and I don't think that's right. I don't think that's how we do it in this society. And I think that we have to change the dynamics to make people that are in these dark places that are comfortable talking about these things that come forth and talk about these things. We have to honor that. We have to make sure that, that, that we do everything possible. Now that they've came out, we have created a safe haven for them to, to, to be in now that they've come out. Yeah, and I think that's what I see, you know, with a lot of the stories I've had on here is, you know, even if the stigma's, stigma's removed, which you're right, I think if, you know, I kind of feel like we're in a bit of an echo chamber because, you know, this is the world that, that you have been involved with personally. It's the world that I've been involved with, you know, trying, trying to help. But the real barrier to entry is getting help. And I agree with you 100%. Like, you know, my man and women, they, the person that's right might not be in their insurance group, you know, or they go through EAP and they end up with a completely wrong counselor that doesn't even understand what we do for a profession. So I, I couldn't agree more. The more people like you and other people do to remove those barriers to entry. So someone in crisis or not in crisis, someone that's just looking for help can then make the decision they need help and then immediately act on that. That is, I think, the next step of how we save lives in the mental health world. Got you. Got you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're absolutely, you nipped it, right? You you, you ride on it. That's how we do it. And, but that's what it's all about. We have to hide, have the idea about, are we really trying to save lives? And I don't think that the plan that we have, the, the things that we have in place aren't designed to save lives. It's to sustain lives. It's a big difference. Big difference. It, 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 it's, if I can save one or two, it's not saving the hundreds and the millions. Like, the way the, the the plan that we have now that may save a couple people, but that but but you 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 lose you know you losing so many more because of that plan because it's not connecting with the people that you need to connect with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kevin, I mean, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. I want to be mindful of your time because I know your little ones have homework to do. Um, so, I want to transition to some quick closing questions before I let you go. Um, the first question I always have, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, you know, I, I would have to say, to be honest with you, uh, not to, not to piggy bank on, you know, <laughs> my good, my good, my, but my, my, my boy over there, but guardian of the golden gate bridge. I mean, you know, Sergeant Briggs book is a very, very good book. Um, it's a very good book because you get the idea of a, a, a person that's been through all these different things, and he, he's a he's a first responder. He's been to all he's had all these honcho chapo jobs, but he's still a human. And I think that this book really shows you how men how we go from you know we got these masculine jobs where we we, we have to be vulnerable enough to get help. So this is a very good book. Absolutely, I think that's what's so powerful is that you know Kevin Briggs was. You know, a big, as you said, manly man. He was a bodybuilder. He was a police officer. But, you know, when he started, you know, as you said, really, really found the compassion within himself, he was able to help others. And he's also had his own mental health battles. So it's not like he's standing on an ivory tower helping other people. He's very transparent about, you know, I mean, any of us, when we have a profession that we work in like this, there's going to be trauma. You can't avoid it. And, and, and what I love about that is he's so honest and courageous telling his own story as well as the people he's helped. Got you. All right. Well, then, same question. What about uh, a movie and or a documentary? Uh, inside Out. You know, you're not the first person in the mental health world listen, to say that. That's funny. Listen, I'm telling you, I, and I, I want to I wanna be loud. I wish I could scream this. That is the greatest movie the greatest movie for mental health. 
Like it should be, it should be a mandatory that every child watches that. That should be implemented into schools. It should be, it should be like the 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 topic of discussion because what it does, it allows you to to identify your emotions. Something that kids cannot do. But if they physically were able to see it, then they would I'd be able to identify it and it would help them. That movie, my therapist, she she told me that movie. I was, I'm not watching no cartoon. She made it my <laughs> homework. It made it required for me. And it was probably one of the greatest things that I ever could have watched because it said, when you watch this movie, Kevin, it's going to be show you your life. And the girl, I, I, they went to San Francisco and they drove over the bridge. It's crazy. Like that movie, connect. I, I see so much of me in that movie, um, the totally different emotions. So Inside Out, de- definitely. Um, you know, uh, definitely inside out. Um, because that's going to give you everything. Brilliant. So. Yeah. Well, I actually took my son to see that in the movie theater. So, um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. All right. Well, then the next question I've had Kevin Hines, I've had Kevin Briggs, I've had Kevin Bathia now. <laughs> so is there someone that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I, I don't, I don't, I, I really don't know. I mean, the, I've grown to love how Kevin, not, not because it, it's just, I've had the opportunity to travel with him and watch how he can handle an audience and watch how he perfect, how professional he is. So I would have to say Kevin Briggs because, you know, or Kevin Hunt, I mean, either one, I mean, you know, we, we, you know, we kind of got this Kevin three square thing down. I mean, to where it's just, you know, it depends on what you want. I mean, because you got, you got so many different aspects uh, of, 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 of so many different stories, but we're connected in, in, in more ways than none. I mean, you know, it's just, that's just, we're, we're connected definitely. So I would definitely have to say Briggs or uh, Hines. Beautiful. Well, good. I had them both. So that's, I've, I've completed the trifecta then. <laughs> All right. All good. So then the last question before we make sure everyone can find you online, what do you do to decompress? Uh, learning every day. I'm still learning that. Um, I'm still like, I'm still, like I say, I'm 2,807 days into this. So I'm still learning what the best things are for me. So it's something new every day. I haven't learned something that works like, like perfectly. So I'm still learning. And I think that people, we have to be okay with still learning techniques for ourselves because we won't. Until we find what what, what we works, we just got to keep working at it. So, um, you know, I like I like just sitting. I, I like talking. I like um, I like I like um, um, watching the basketball game. Um, I, you know, I enjoy writing. Um, you know, anything that's relaxing, anything that that takes my where I don't have to think about the freeway brain that I have. Brilliant. All right. Well, then, if people want to reach out to you, um, they want to find the website. Let's just go over again where they can find you online. Yeah, Um I'm on Twitter at Kevin Berthea, um, uh, Kevin Berthea Foundation, Instagram. Um, uh, let's see, what else social media are there? Facebook, Kevin Berthea, and Kevin Berthea Suicide Prevention Advocate page. So those are, you know, if you Google my name, Kevin Berthea, all my stuff pretty much will pop up. So Beautiful. Well, Kevin, I just want to say thank you. I mean, as as we mentioned, I'd had Kevin Briggs, I'd had Kevin Hines. You know, these are two very powerful stories, and you know, I, I'm honored that I got to hear yours as well because 
you know, there's that iconic photo and it is that, you know, it's a moment in, in both of your lives. But to hear the stories between, you know, both and, and to hear the incredible, you know, growth that you've had after that, um, you know, there's so many parallels to a lot of the stories I've had on so much to take for the people listening. So, but, you know, the end of the day, this only happens when someone like you has the courage to tell their story. So I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous today. Gotcha. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you.